0: As of the printing of the bulletin on Thursday, the intent was to read all 39 verses. But on Friday, as I finished my sermon, I realized that uh, it was simply too much. We were going to be here till one or two o'clock. There's so much to discuss, so much to say about Jesus Out of Hebrews chapter 10, that we're actually going to break it down and move much more slowly. So this morning, we are going to be focusing on verses 1 through 18, and so several pages in your bulletin are not germane and don't apply to today. And uh, the title of the sermon will change to Jesus, a single sacrifice, and we'll get to the new and living way next week, promise. Let's read from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of, of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to God. Let's pray. As we come to your word this morning, we do ask for your help. It is your Spirit who leads us into all truth, and he leads us into the path and the way of liberty. And so send out your light and your truth this morning, Father. We ask you to speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. Beyond the Bible, one of the best-selling books in the Christian world is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. The book, if you're familiar with it, is an elaborate allegory about the Christian life. Specifically, it addresses the long road of Christian discipleship and the many pitfalls and dangers, the trials and temptations that Christians encounter along the way. And so Bunyan's book, if to sum it up, is it's a book about Christian perseverance. One scene in particular captures this. Christian, who is the main character, visits another character. His name is Interpreter. He visits Interpreter's house. And inside of Interpreter's house, he sees a fire burning against a wall. And by that fire, he sees one person dousing water upon the fire, attempting to extinguish it. But the flames only grew higher and hotter as the water was poured onto the flames. And so Christian asked Interpreter, what does this mean? And he says, well, the man standing by the fire is the devil. And the fire is the grace of God alive in the heart of the believer. And he's seeking to extinguish it with the water. Was well enough. But then Interpreter takes Christian around to the other side of the wall that no one could see. And it was on the other side of the wall that Christian then sees another man. And that man is taking oil and continuously pouring it upon the fire. So despite the water that's coming in from one direction, oil is coming in from the other. And this is why the fire was burning higher and hotter continuously, that it couldn't be extinguished. And so Christian then asked, what does this mean? And this is what Interpreter explains. This is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart. And this is Bunyan's point. In the Christian life, perseverance is necessary. And the key to that perseverance is the grace of God and Jesus. In order to persevere, we have to be awakened again and again to this grace. To understand these realities, we must know that that oil that keeps the fire of grace burning in our lives. In Hebrews, we've seen that this was a very present need. Because this early congregation, they were in need of perseverance. They were contemplating a return to Judaism or perhaps a compromise with Judaism. Whatever the case, they were failing to endure and they were drifting away. And in chapters 8 through 10, what we've seen is an extended argument that shows us the key to this perseverance. Because across this argument, it's not something necessarily to do that they weren't supposed to pull themselves up by their moral bootstraps and get tough. But rather the argument in these three chapters is to draw our attention to Jesus and all that God is doing in and through him on our behalf. And that this focus upon the grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ is the key to our perseverance. And specifically in these chapters, the writer speaks of the sacrifice of Jesus and how this brings the grace of God into our lives. And in Hebrews 10, these 18 verses this morning, there are three aspects of the sacrifice of Jesus that we are to see, that are to draw us into. How does the grace of God feed us in order that we persevere? And those three things are the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And the second is the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. And the third is the effects of that same sacrifice. And so ahead of our celebration of the Lord's table this morning, in which we come to give thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus, and then his continual intercession for us at God's right hand, let's consider each of these three. First, we're invited into the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. If you follow in verses 5 through 7, you see that the The preacher, the writer of Hebrews, quotes extensively from Psalm chapter 40. It's verses 6 and 7 of the psalm that we read this morning. But follow along again. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book." And what is fascinating for us here is that these words are put on the lips of Jesus, that he is the the one who prays the words of Psalm 40. This is him, that he is the one who has come to do the will of God, that he comes to work out the will of God in his own life. And what's essential for us to understand is that in Jesus' life, there was no just mere external conformity, to God's regulations, that Jesus obeyed God from the heart. He didn't follow the rules in his actions to hide a rotten motivation. He didn't bend the rules to his own advantage beneath a pious type of veneer. He didn't say one thing and do another. No, Jesus, as fully human being and also fully God, he rendered his obedience to God in his thoughts. In his words and and in his deeds. It was a full and real obedience that he presented to God. There was this unbroken submission that took place in Jesus' life. And that submission was to the law of God, what God commands, and to the will of God. That is the plan of God to accomplish the world's redemption. And Jesus, in following the will of God and the plan of God... As he gave himself to that, it cost him a great deal. It was at the cost of his own life. But Jesus perfectly obeyed through all his sufferings and his hardships. Now when we speak of this, this isn't new. That Jesus was the perfect one. He was without sin, without fault. In that way, he's distinguished from us. He's not like us but oftentimes it can simply be a truism for us that Jesus was without sin, that he's not like me. And it doesn't seem to have much connection with us. But I'd like to suggest to you that we are particularly unimpressed with this doctrine of Jesus being the sinless one when we feel feel very little need for it. The greater our familiarity with our own weaknesses the actual more impressive Jesus' accomplishment is. That in his values, that in his motivations, that in his beliefs and in his actions, there was no fault to be found. That the more we get in touch with our own sinfulness, the more valuable Jesus' obedience actually becomes. Because we see just how big of an accomplishment it was. Now, as a young Christian, my freshman year in college, I was part of a college ministry and was given several books to read. I was given one book by a man named Jerry Bridges, one that many of you might be familiar with, and it was called The Pursuit of Holiness. And so I was industrious at this point in my Christian life, and I consumed The Pursuit of Holiness. And after a few months, I felt like I had mastered it. There was a streak of self-righteousness living in me that I hadn't identified yet at that point. And through the next year, I remember thinking, well, where else am I supposed to go? I was then mastering the different basis of theology. I was reading R.C. Sproul's works at that point, and I was listening, and I was feeling the call of God on my life as a minister during my sophomore year of college. And then I picked up a book by a man named Jonathan Edwards. It was titled The Religious Affections. And in that book, I was introduced to something new, and no longer did I feel so great about my mastering of the pursuit of holiness. Edwards introduced me to a new term. It was called legal obedience, (laughs) and he was exposing the fault of so much of what passes in religion for obedience to God. I was suddenly seeing that, oh... Yeah, I had cleaned up certain things. Certain things about my life had changed. But there was a whole new world and avenue. In fact, it wasn't an avenue. It was a boulevard. It wasn't just a boulevard. It was an interstate. Five lanes flowing each way of just sin and filth and impurity. And friends, it was at that point where I almost felt like I had converted. Having been in the church my entire life, Understanding the grace of God in so many ways, but suddenly being struck there, reading the religious affections and understanding that there had to be a perfect one. One who in his thoughts, in his words, and in his deeds didn't fail because I was suddenly being crushed by all the failure. And this is the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, that he comes and does the will of God. And that is the key for us to understand the first groundwork of the sacrifice of Jesus as what he is qualified to do as the perfect one. This leads us to the second point, where we're invited to then understand and appreciate the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice. In the first four chapters, uh, first four verses of chapter 10, we learn about the inadequacy of the sacrifices of the Mosaic system especially the sacrifice that took place once a year on the Day of Atonement, where the high priest went in on behalf of the people. We're told that these sacrifices were shadows of good things to come, that they were inadequate because they were not the thing itself. And then in verse 4, it's emphasized that it's not by the blood of bulls and goats that sins are taken away. The offerings were insufficient. And the writer argues because they were insufficient, they had to be repeated every year. And they actually only served to remind the people of their sins. And so they held them locked up in sin. But then he turns his focus in the latter part of the chapter to say, but no, the good thing has now arrived. And this is where the basis of Jesus' sacrifice as the perfect one who is without sin becomes so important. And we discover the reason in verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Without Jesus' perfection, his sacrifice would mean nothing. But because he fully obeyed the will of God, and he offered his body, the perfect one, He is able to sanctify us once and for all. Follow into verse 14, the same logic. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That Jesus, in his perfection, in his sinlessness, in which he fully obeyed the law of God, and he fully followed the plan of God, he is the one able to offer himself in our place on our behalf, to handle our sins once and for all. The word sanctified here can be misleading for many people because they are accustomed to seeing that word in other parts of the Bible, and it does mean something slightly different here. We have to always be conscious that in the book of Hebrews, the language is being drawn from the temple, and the term sanctified was used when something was set apart. So when there was a vessel to be consecrated for use in the temple, it had to be sanctified. When a priest was going to serve in the temple, he had to be sanctified. It means to be set apart for the service of God. And this is what it means, that we have been sanctified, we have been set apart, reconciled to God, and now we are actively in the service of God as Jesus intercedes on our behalf. Through Jesus' offering of himself, we have been definitively, once and for all, sanctified because his offering is sufficient. Now, for each of us, we are culturally conditioned somewhat to find our sense of wholeness and our sense of well being in the approval of others. If we don't find our sense of wholeness and well being in the approval of others, we tend to then find it in our achievements and in our accomplishments. And it is for these type of people who find their sense of wholeness and well-being in the approval of others or in their achievements and accomplishments that the grace of God is such good news. It is also threatening news in certain ways, but it is really good news because the announcement of the sufficiency of Jesus' death that he has reconciled us, that he has set us apart for God, that once and for all, that there are not multiple sacrifices necessary, there's one sacrifice that's been made for us. What we find there is something objective and outside, that we have the approval of God, not because of something we have to do, but we have the approval of God through what has been done for us in Jesus. And this is the appeal to us. That once and for all, Jesus has handled the dilemma that we have in front of God and canceled out our sins. You have been made right because of what someone else has done on your behalf. And so we're free from attaining that approval. We're free from trying to achieve and accomplish in order to gain acceptance. That because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf... We have a sufficient sacrifice, and we're made right with God. The final aspect of this sacrifice that we're drawn into in in chapter 10 is what we're invited to appreciate the effects of Jesus' sacrifice. Verses 15 through 18, the writer turns to capture these effects of what God is then working in us. See, because of the objective event of Jesus being with us, that is, as the perfect one who obeyed the will of God fully, and then the one who went to the cross in order to be for us, to stand in our place, to offer his righteous self as an offering to God. And because he is with us and for us, now we can appreciate the subjective effects of what Christ then works in us two things are outlined for us here we've seen these previously in this 3 chapter unit the first you find in verse 16 and that is that the law of god is written on the hearts because jesus christ is with us and because he is for us in his death he is also at work in us to write the law upon our hearts quoting from jeremiah chapter 31 this is the covenant that i will make with them after those days declares the lord I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. What we once hated, we now love. What we once considered to be drudgery, we now find to be a source of freedom. That the law of God written upon the heart is the path and way to freedom. It's not the way of trying to gain approval with God. It's simply the way that human beings are to flourish and live That we're nurtured in that way as we follow God in obedience. This is what the Spirit does as He writes the law upon the heart. And when the writer quotes from Jeremiah 31, it's not just that the law has been written upon the heart, the one who writes the law upon the heart is the Spirit of God. And so not only has it been written and we learn to love it, but we're also empowered towards a new end. Several years ago, I bought a new blower to handle my driveway after cutting the grass. And it was one of those hot summer days in which I was absolutely exhausted after finishing cutting the grass and emptying the bags. My sons weren't quite old enough to assist at that point. It was all on me. And so I got to the blower. I picked it up, turned the power on, and there was nothing. I turned it off, turned it back on, nothing. Did it again. Gently put it down, <laughs> said some things about the blower and how it was new and how it was not functioning and how I was hot and how I was tired and how I didn't want to deal with this and I didn't want to take it back to Lowe's and why was life just so inconvenient. And as I went on my tirade, I turned around and there was the extension cord <laughs> not plugged into said blower. And this is so much the way that we pursue the Christian life, though, when we think about obedience. We think about what we have to do in our own empowerment to get things under control, to do better. And this is not the effect that God is seeking to work out. He's not asking you to go out and do better. He says, no, I've given you divine empowerment. I've placed my spirit in you. I've written my law on your heart in order to teach you to love what I love in order to empower you to love what I love. And so we oftentimes seek it on our own when we're to seek the Holy Spirit, to ask God to help us in the middle of all that weakness when we feel inadequate to obey his commands. He's given us the power to do so, the help to do so. The second effect that we see follows in verse 17. Where God promises from Jeremiah 31 once again, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's a remarkable thing to think that God forgets our sins. Very similar to Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the one whose transgressions the Lord will not take into account. That's the blessing of being in fellowship with God. That God Forgets our sins. He forgives them through the sufficient sacrifice. But there's another side to this because it's not just about what happens for God in not remembering your faults and your failures. What we also find is that our conscience is made clean. If you remember back to the beginning verses of the chapter, verse 2 we are told that those sacrifices that were offered, they kept the conscience bound in its sin. That the conscience was not purged. But through the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus, the good thing who was on the other side of the shadow of those sacrifices, the sufficient sacrifice who once for all gives himself, that yes, through him... God is now purging our conscience. The things that sometimes we so long like to hold on to, that we think God can't forgive, and we hear the news of God's grace, but we want to wrestle with it and we want to hold ourselves in some guilt for some reason. God is saying to you today that that's not why Jesus died. He didn't die in order to make you feel guilty and for you to hold on to that guilt. That's not what his work is about. He desires to purge the conscience. That those sins and those failures that you bring. That those have been forgiven and God remembers them no more. And he wants to wash them away from your own mind. He doesn't want us to live with the dirty and polluted conscience. When God has forgiven and remitted our sins. And friends it is this grace of God. That's based in the perfect obedience of Jesus. That that perfect obedience then qualifies him to be a sufficient sacrifice. And then the effects that this sacrifice then brings into our lives. That understanding all of this grace and all that God has for us in Jesus. This is the key to persevering in the Christian life. To get lost and awakened again and again by this grace. To understand the magnitude of it. And to know that we'll never fully grasp it. That it'll always be outside of us in certain ways because it's just too immense and too big. And this is the wonder of the Christian life. And the key to your perseverance is understanding that oil that Jesus is dumping onto that fire. And that oil is all the grace of God bound up in him. That's what God has for you. And so let's ask him for his help this morning.